Hey, have you always been interested in animation or video game design? Well, that's a little bit different from filmmaking, but it's not exactly completely different. And today's guest, Marty Davis, is both a student and an experienced veteran in the animation industry for video games. So if you're interested in either category, he's also interested in illustration. And yes, that is different from filmmaking, but I know him through class, and he is studying in the same major as me, which is as close to filmmaking as you can get at UC San Diego. And I really think that you'll get a lot out of this episode if you're a potential illustrator or video game designer slash artist slash rigger. Well, now, what is a rigger, you might ask? Well, find out later as you listen to this episode. He answers these questions such as what is a rigger? What are the inner workings of video game companies? Because he has worked for them and he has returned to school I'm very, very thankful to call him a fellow student in my class right now. So get ready, get out your pen and paper, because this is the Film Fraternity Podcast, episode 11. This is the Film Fraternity Podcast, a show that's all about filmmaking in college, so you can turn your student projects into powerful portfolios. And now, here's the host of Film Frat House, Zach Sabo. Hello, welcome back to the Film Frat Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Sabo, and this is another special guest episode. And I have to say, this has been my favorite conversation by far during the podcast. And this is a conversation with a, a student, uh, frankly, a friend of mine, in class but he's not just any student he's a student who has worked with major video game companies to design their games as an animator now now the thing is he has come to UC San Diego which is where I am attending currently uh, he attended in the 90s but he dropped out because he found some opportunities that kind of Actually, more like he had opportunities that came to him. Um, he'll tell that story in the podcast. But uh, it's really, really interesting to hear his story because he he went through so much and has very valuable experience even without finishing school. And now he is returning to school to get his degree so that he can teach. Um, so that says something about the industry yes that was the 90s but i feel like this this connection with networking and getting to know people really is what matters most uh, of course you got to have talent as well as marty definitely does our guest today our guest is marty davis and he is an illustrator and an artist and uh, uh somewhat of a sculptor i think <laughs> uh but he's definitely uh, had experience in animation and he goes into his story about how he got in and what is a rigger what is a, uh, a character design artist all these things uh, the components he he delves into what is uh, what it's like to work for a video game company uh, all the way from the Genesis the Sega Genesis all the way up to the PlayStation 3 
because uh, actually he has worked with a couple of major major names out there, such as Blue Sky Software. Uh, he talks a bit about that in his early uh, beginnings as a junior animator for them. Uh, and he also talks about how he later returned to that uh, industry in L.A. Um, to work with Heavy Iron Studios, which by uh, by a sheer coincidence, I feel, is um, a video game company that I uh, held dearly when I was young um, because I realized that they made some of my favorite games. And I am now just shocked to, to realize that I know someone who has worked with them. And it's just, it's crazy, it's crazy. He's even worked for... Um, for Heavy Iron to make the games for Ratatouille and Wally, it's yeah, yeah. He's 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 gone through a lot, <laughs> uh, but it's interesting to hear his story, and I really hope you get a lot out of it. This is a conversation worth listening to all the way through. Without any further ado, this is my conversation with Marty Davis. All right, Marty Davis is in the house. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Zach? I'm awesome. Yeah, it's coming up to the the heat of the fall quarter. Yes. And uh, as you know, we are sharing a class together. Yes. We are classmates technically, <laughs> but uh, you are much more my senior than me, and I feel like you have a lot of experience to to share. So, so I guess we could start somewhere. What was the point where you realized you wanted to pursue? film or was it film it was really animation hmm. more than film and i ended up leaving ucsd i dropped out of ucsd way way back in the 90s uh i think 1992 might have been when i dropped out wow um my last class was in this classroom uh <laughs> and um and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I wanted a job in animation, and I was trying to get a job on Ren and Stimpy. And those jobs were all up in Los Angeles. I dropped out of school here and taught myself to animate to the best of my ability over about an 11-month period. Um, I started looking for work up in LA. Um, but in the meantime, I was taking a life drawing class down here at the Athenaeum, which is a private uh, arts library and little just private for interest school here in La Jolla. And an art director for a video game company was in there, saw my drawings and asked if I wanted to interview for a job. They were looking for a junior animator to work on the Ren and Stimpy video game for Sega Genesis. Wow. And so I went in and got a job uh, with that and then worked in video games for like six years from there. Genesis games and then PS1. Wow, yeah, so that and was that PC. era, the 90s, yeah. The 90s, Those hard were hot, in it, huh? yeah, 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 hard in it, yeah, yeah. Did a bunch of titles, did Ren and Stimpy, did the Roadrunner and Coyote for Warner Brothers. I started Ren and Stimpy as the junior animator. There was me and a lead animator, basically, and the, the producer was also doing some animation. And by the end of that schedule, which was very short, I mean, I was working on it five months maybe, um, I was the lead animator. And then the next titles I did, I was the lead animator on it. And back in those days, the lead animator was the animator. I had won the Roadrunner Coyote, I did have an assistant animator, um, and, he, and he was great, a guy named Drew Crevy, who's done a lot of video game stuff, but I was at that point not a good manager at all. 
And I was like, I'll just do it, I'll just do it. And I wasn't good at explaining why I felt like the animations that he did weren't working as well as what I wanted him to do. And um, I was only 24 at the time. Mm -hmm. And had you know very little experience, and and I think retrospectively, uh, I looked back on that and really thought about oh, okay, well why why was that not a good, uh, why, how did I really fail as as kind of a lead animator there, mm -hmm. um, and that really helped later on when I kind of came back to video games and was managing more and being a director. So um, I did learn my lesson, Drew. If you're out there. <laughs> So, so that was the, the first opportunity, and that was based in San Diego? Yeah, uh, it was a company called Blue Sky Software, not the Blue Sky that is the feature film animation company that's out on the East Coast that's mm -hmm. done epic and Ice Age films, right? Okay. Um, this was a place called Blue Sky Software down here that began doing arcade games, and uh, then Sega contacted them and they started developing Sega Genesis games. And then they, you know, Sega kind of blew apart and they did some PC games and, um, and then ultimately kind of the company went away. It was bought out by a French company and just kind of dissolved over a period of time in the late 90s. Okay. But I was, I was long gone by then. Mm, I see, I see. So did you grow up in San Diego? Or? No, I grew up in LA. Okay. I grew up in LA and came down to San Diego to, to attend UCSD without a clue what I was going to do. Okay. So you thought it was smart to drop out because of that first opportunity you got, basically? Is that Actually, I dropped out before I had any opportunity. Oh, I was wow. so frustrated with the lack of instruction here. <laughs> they had one animation class, which to their credit, they offered a lot. You know, it was, it was frequently on the, on the schedule. And we came in the first day, the professor, a fellow who's passed away since, but was an experimental animator, he taught us how to load film into the camera. We used to have a 16 millimeter Acme animation stand camera here and uh, taught us how to load the film, how we would shoot this stuff and the basic principle of animation, and then said, well, go ahead and come back in 10 weeks with your film, basically. And uh, I really struggled, and I was doing cell animation. Um, I never did finish my film, but I did a lot of stuff in it and just trying to get my way through, trying to figure out animation. This was in the era long before YouTube or any sort of online, I mean, it was before the internet. Yeah. So there was a book in the library here, the Disney uh, Illusion of Life book by uh, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson. I checked it out. And I didn't turn it back in for like five years until they finally tracked me down and said, you owe $360 in fines. So I just said, if I turn it in, can we call it even? <laughs> um, but uh, so, so that, that, cla that course, when I took that, was right when Little Mermaid came out. Wow. And all of a sudden it was like, well, there's jobs in animation. You can do animation. And I had gone through high school as an as a enthusiast, you know, as a fan, and I would rent and I bought you know, VHS copies of old Disney movies and Warner Brothers stuff, and I really liked that stuff, but it was still a really obscuro subject at that time. And then all of a sudden, you know, there were more jobs suddenly, because it had been a dying industry um, for a long time, and uh, I thought, well, maybe I can get a job in this, you know? And uh, that kind of started me. Hadn't planned to go into video games, but wound up you know, getting that job there. Now the reason I got the job there was because I was good at life drawing. I wasn't a good animator. 
I had a, a feel for it, but I mean, it was ridiculous how bad I was in a way. And I always tell, you know, fellow students and people that want to get in the industry, like, you know, you've, you're, you're, uh, you're always bad at the beginning. Like, it's only really through doing the work that you get good. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a real tough thing when you're trying to get that first job because it, you just don't, it's not just that you don't have the experience. There's something about doing production work that really, you know, just, just, uh, hones the skills, you know, and makes it applicable. Absolutely. Yes. So God bless him for giving me a chance when I was terrible. But, you know, <laughs> within a few weeks, I was up and running and doing fine and then lead animator for that company for a long time. That's great. Yeah. So what were the other opportunities that, that were lined up later on? So like what other companies did you work for and did you go back to LA? I assume uh, you did. Uh, yeah, I did. I did. We, I, um, I left Blue Sky for Sony. I felt a lot of loyalty to Blue Sky, but they weren't paying me as much as I felt I needed, uh, not needed, but wanted, deserved, really, is, is, is how I felt about it. But um, they, uh, and then Sony was trying to recruit me. They were, they had a studio they were really building up for the PS1 first gen games. And, uh, and I talked to them and they said, well, how much do you want? And I just named a big figure. I said I wanted, at the time I was making 50,000. I'd gone from starting at 24,000 in 93 at Blue Sky and got a raise up to 50,000, I think, or 48,000 by 90. Five, maybe. Wow. That's not bad. <laughs> now, back then, that was like, like back then, anything over 20 grand was a decentish living. And, yeah. and up to 50 was like really good. So when Sony yeah. like, well, how much do you want? How much are you making now? And I'm like, well, it doesn't really matter what I'm making now. And they're like, well, how much do you want? And I said, well, I want 80 grand plus bonuses. Wow. And they were like, I remember the producer was like, <laughs> Ooh, that's that's a lot. I'm like, well, I'll ask for him. I'm like, if not, I'm happy where I'm at, home. you know. And I really wasn't that happy at Blue Sky. There was a lot of problems over that company, but I felt like, eh, do I really want to go to Sony? And then then they called me that afternoon. They're like, okay, we got it approved. We're gonna fax over. We're gonna fax over your offer letter. And so at that point, it's like, well, I really couldn't jump ship. I mean, I really couldn't not go over there because they met my price. And so that was good. I, uh, that was my best year ever because I was making the 80 plus we got a $20,000 bonus plus I was doing freelance on the side, which was like another 20 grand. So like I was like a millionaire to, to <laughs> my way of thinking back then. That's amazing. Um, but uh, now that was in 96, 90, 95, 96 when I had that, that period. And then when I came back to the industry, so then I left. I actually got really burned out of that job. I didn't like the game. We were doing the Spawn video game. Mm. A lot of problems with the game. It was also really violent, and I'd been kind of spoiled by being able to do platformers and, and, and cartoon-based games. And I just, for myself personally, I wasn't that into doing like the violent stuff, mm -hmm. and I really didn't like Todd McFarlane. Um, and uh, we had the... Um, the so so I did it I finished that game my part of it the animation and then I came in for my year review and I wrote I gave them my resignation letter and they were like what wow I said I got to do something different so I went and did professional sculpture for about 10 years from that 
and uh, in that process taught a lot of sculpture, taught a lot of anatomy, worked a lot on my life drawing and my, you know, the type of sculpture I was doing was pretty traditional, very anatomy based, classical. And then my wife and I moved to France for a year. She was doing her PhD research. And when I came back, we moved to LA. And a friend of mine was animation director for a studio called Heavy Iron Studios. Heavy Iron uh, Studios? Heavy Iron hey, Studios. Hey, I've heard of them. Yeah, they yeah. were a division of THQ. And uh -huh. they were doing, at the time, THQ had a five game contract to do the Pixar video games. Uh -huh. And this was sort of just, they signed that contract and, and a few years later, Pixar Disney merged. And so this was something written with Pixar and then Disney came into the picture while, while we were completing this contract. So we knew the contract ultimately wouldn't be renewed or most likely wouldn't. Like they'd want to keep that in-house with Disney Interactive. But uh, he, did, he wanted to go to just animating and he, he asked if I'd interview for taking over the, the uh, director, as they called it, of the animation department, which when I left video games, it was just me that did all the animation on Spawn. Mm -hmm. And when I came back, it was a department of like, I think it was 14, and we wound up with 16 people while I was there. Um, animators, modelers, riggers, character designer, um, so a lot more elaborate. And then, mm -hmm. and then people fulfilling the role of director, directing the performances, directing the kind of the group. Mm -hmm. um, as well as overseeing the animation department. So that's, that was the, that I did, and we did uh, Ratatouille. I came on board when they were like halfway through Ratatouille, helped finish Ratatouille, deliver that. We won animation of the year in a video game for that. And then, uh, then Wally. -E. I was on Wally, -E, but then I left before we finished Wally. -E. Wow. Wow, so this was Heavy Iron? or This was at Heavy Iron. I can't believe you worked there. Cause huh. you, know, you know what's so funny is that I grew up playing the GameCube okay. uh, and the PS2, but um, there was one, there was actually two big video games that I played on the GameCube, and those were both SpongeBob games. The movie, SpongeBob SquarePants, the movie, and SpongeBob SquarePants Battle for Bikini Bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved that game, and I still do to this day. Oh, because that's great. Because it was like... It's it's nonlinear, you know. You could like choose like different areas to go in and get the golden spatulas and all. That. <laughs> so like anyway, it, it, now people are trying to do speed runs of it and all that. Oh, funny. So yeah, and the heavy iron, you know, they were the ones who did that. Well, they yeah, and they did that before I came on board, but they were, um, you know, it, it's a it's it, it's a real compromised position to take on those movie games. On the one hand, you get to you don't have to figure out the characters, right? Like you're not coming up with, you know, IP, your own concept, so you're not gonna profit that much, but you've got kind of a built-in audience, and then it's like, it's cool to deal with characters that you know and kind of come up with a video game spin, but the schedules were killer on those. You really only have less than 12 months for the actual production schedule, and the games, so many of the movie games, like the Pixar movie games, we just felt were just so compromised, just because mm -hmm. of the schedule. You know, right, the, the game platforms got more and more sophisticated. And we were doing uh, PS3, Xbox 360, wow. PS2, uh, PSP, and Wii by the end. All and so, And so <laughs> we would sub out some of the lower. There was a really good company in uh, France that did um, a 
the PS2 company called the Sobo mm. and uh, and the Wii versions that we work with and so it was complicated yeah I'm yeah. glad to hear you like that the guys used to talk about those games oh. all the time at work yeah fell in love with that game that's honestly. great uh, yeah it's part of my childhood and I went revisited it recently because of the speed runs that <laughs> people were doing of it and I'm like wow you can hack the game like that oh, like, that's funny. like I mean there were glitches in game that people didn't discover until now oh. and they're able to beat the game like in an hour Oh, that's funny. It's like crazy because you can skip whole sections of the game. Oh, that's funny. It's so funny. Well, and that's always the knock on movie games is that, you know, they're um, they're relatively short because the short production time is they're not super, super deep. And they have to be released before the movie comes out, right? Well, is we that have true? To, so we usually, at like three months minimum, we have to be locked three months before because of the manufacturing process and like mm -hmm. in Ratatouille that was an issue because in that three months they changed the color of some of the characters like Emil's color changed um, just little detail things they mm -hmm. changed uh, uh, but we have to be locked for the bug testing and then and then the um, the process of like actually manufacturing the, the disc to be distributed and getting them into stores because the whole premise on movie games once we got kind of into the into the 2000s was um, that they simultaneously release with the movie. Uh, okay. Whereas what used to be that you, like, like for instance, one of the games that we started developing at Blue Sky when I first got hired, they had a little office where Tom Moon and Mark Thobratz were developing Aladdin. They were going to do Aladdin for Disney. Huh. And at that point, Aladdin had been out for like a year, maybe? Wow. Maybe two years. And, um, and it was sort of like, oh yeah, the movie did well, let's make a game. It was much less tied together, and that was great. And then those bastards at Virgin stole the contract away from Disney. God oh. bless you guys. <laughs> it was a bunch of friends of mine. Ultimately, we ended up meeting those guys, Mike Dietz, Ed Schofield, Doug Tenaple went from Blue Sky over there, and, uh, and Mike and Ed and, and, and I worked on a lot of projects. Super good guys. Wow. Super talented guys. Super good animators. But they kind of... They kind of led that Virgin Games. They did Cool Spot, then they did um, the uh, the Aladdin game, and they were big, uh, big hits. And the Jungle Book. Okay, wow, yeah. Which like oh. Jungle Book was a movie that came out in '66, but they were like, well, let's make. There was a cool period where, like, there was a weird French game on the Sega Genesis that was the Fantasia game. Oh. And like, it's a bad game in a lot of ways, but like, I loved it because it was just like how cool to try and make, and it had all the like. 16-bit, but almost really like an 8-bit level of music, like they had a really primitive music uh, uh, for that game, but it was, it was really cool and interesting. I think there's a lot of scope for that creativity, and the Disney guys have tried to, you know, take advantage of that with like the, what did they call it, the Disney Universe, the Infinity stuff. Yeah, you know? right. They've expanded beyond just like, let's have a hard release where it's like a game for the movie, but mm -hmm. um, those I have not worked on. Interesting. So, so um, backing up a little bit, theoretically, like as, as far as the theory of, you know, um, animation itself, mm. how did you feel that your drawing skills transferred over to video games, especially in the beginning when like it was mostly pixel art? It was, it was all pixel art and literally the characters I was animating were like 16 to 28 pixels tall. <laughs> and it was funny because they were... There was an interesting tension back there because guys would, Doug Tenaple would draw stuff on paper 
and scan it in, and then you de-res these scans, and it would just be like a little collage of pixels. But they were more comfortable kind of getting the animation performance into the computer that way. And pretty quickly, I just got used to drawing it in pixels. Mm. And um, the drawingness comes in on two levels. Number one, you know, any kind of art endeavor like like animation is a is a matter of your eye. It's mm -hmm. judgment, right? It's like that looks right. That doesn't quite look right. How am I going to tweak it? I can figure it out. So drawing is a process to train your eye, and I always had a good eye for that stuff. And then the other aspect is, it really helps your profile. Like most of the companies that I went to, it was always nice to be considered like oh, that dude can draw. Like mm -hmm. he's one of the best artists, or specifically like life drawing, like I could always draw people. And it's funny, because like I was terrible back then. But <laughs> the industry and just the art world in general was like at a nadir back then at the, in the early 90s. And there were just a few people beginning to try and revive this more traditional way of drawing, like the Watts Atelier that's up here now in San Diego. They were training up in, up in LA with a guy named Fred Fixler and kind of bringing back this more traditional tonal way of drawing and more emphasis on understanding anatomy. And um, so, so uh, you know, looking back, it was like, oh, I was rocky, but I was a lot better than many of the other people in there. Mm -hmm. And I just kept working on it. Like, it's very easy when you actually get a job somewhere, you're so busy like doing the work for those other skills to fall away. And that's especially true in animation, especially in computer animation, because you're not really called on to draw that much, and you've got so much work to do with just moving pixels or polygons around yeah. that you can really get disconnected. But by kind of keeping that skill and always improving it, it kind of kept me a leg ahead, and it really leads to adaptability then. So when the platforms would change, I wasn't tied to just like, well, I'm only good at like, you know, a 320 by 224 screen on the Genesis. I could adapt to whatever. I could adapt to 3D. Yeah, yeah. So, what was it like to you know leave the industry in that period and then come back in the, you know fast the, forward to Ratatouille and all that? It what was, was it? it was crazy because it had, you know it was so primitive what we were doing. Even the PS One, I was working in Alias at the time on the PS One, which which ultimately became what's now known as Maya. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we were on SGI workstations. They were like $80,000 individual workstations. They were, they were like P PCs, but they were specifically to run uh, Alias. And, um, it, and when I came back 10 years later, it was interesting because the technology, and I mentioned the money I was making, not to brag at all, <laughs> but to give people an idea of just like what the salaries are out there and what it could be. And yeah. I was definitely in a secondary market in, in San Diego. Um, I could have made more potentially going up to LA but, uh, or, or San Francisco, but I was still making fine money for then. But when I quit uh, that first year on my own, I think I made 17 grand, you know? And I didn't make nearly as much money as a sculptor, but I was so much happier because mm. it was rough. It was seven day a week, like for like a year on that spawn project. It was a lot of work. Um, later, when I came back, I was blown away by how much the industry had advanced, and it was leaps and bounds closer to filmmaking. So, mm. in doing the Pixar games, we worked a lot with Pixar, and they would directly give us assets. 
So they would give us the models of Wally or um, Ratatouille. I don't know exactly how that handoff was. I don't think they did that so much. There was still a gap. But by the time we got to Wally, because of the designs on that, um, they gave us you know the model for the Axiom, the model for Wally, a bunch of stuff. Um, and also the rigging was much more sophisticated. Mm. And you also, the double edge of that is then you relied a lot more on the technical achievement. So it was very important. The thing that made us successful there was that we had a really good technical artist, the guy that did the rigging for us, this guy Carlos Sansonetti, who's at Blizzard now, hmm. was our rigger that we totally lucked into. We, I say Mike hired him, it was, it was like a month or two before I started. Um, but he'd applied for an animation job and they didn't have any animation jobs, but Mike looked at his reel and saw like the rigging looked good. And he mm -hmm. said, can you rig? And Carlo said, yeah. And Carlo was a day away from booking a flight to go home to Italy. He'd been looking for a job. <laughs> He'd gone to college here, could not find a job for like a year, and was just about to give up. And Mike's like, well, we need a rigger. Why don't you come in? And so Carlo came in and did it and, and has had like a fabulous career. So it, it was so important to get that technical aspect nailed down. And uh, video games are interesting because you really have to juggle the technical demands with the performance demands. Um, mm -hmm. You need a game that doesn't chunk, right? We've all played games that chunk, and every, yeah. no matter what <laughs> platform you're on, you're always right up against the limit of what's permissible. And, and so, and the animation gets um, stomped on a lot with that too. For instance, in, so we had an, this was before, we weren't using, um, proprietary engines at that point. We were developing our own internal game engines. Wow. Uh, and so at Heavy Iron, they had a guy, he was based in Texas and he'd written this engine and it was already a whole cluster with the guy being in Texas and we're in, in LA trying to make these games. But um, we do our animation and we were very particular about making the performance really match the character and what Pixar's guidelines were. And they had some great animators there. And then he plug it in the game and it would just look really soft in the game. Hmm. And we kept going back and forth like, this is looking really so what's the deal? We found out that he had set up this thing that he hadn't told us about in the animation interpolation in the game that had a scale of like one to 10. And one is like you're using one tenth of the amount of keyframes. So instead of like, you'd have like a, like a eight keyframe kind of throw, like picture a character throwing a ball, and you're specifically making eight definite poses of kind of the, the arms fully loaded, and then it sort of goes in this weird position, and then it's at the top of the arc, and then it ex extreme uh, extension, and then it kind of pops back, and instead it would take all those and just average them, and it would make this really smooth, boring oh, movement. And we, yeah. not, and we went through two games not knowing like, <laughs> why is this, and then finally like on Wally, they're like, oh, well, I just keep this at one because you guys are using too much uh, memory. And we're like, what? Interesting. So yeah. we got it where we could control that and turn the things around. So those are kind of the vagaries. But when I came back to Heavy Iron, the people there that were like excellent animators, you know, uh, different people in the department, they were making like not that much more than half of what I was making. So the downward pressure on wages in that 10-year gap was unbelievable because you'd had this explosion of training. When I started out, animators, we could kind of write our own ticket because uh, it was so hard to find an animator. Mm. And 
by the time I came back, the, a lot of schools had caught on and they realized like, hey, people pay a lot of money to learn animation. And there was a lot of people out there willing to work. And, and what year was this approximately? Like what? So this is the gap between like 96 and 2006. Oh, okay, okay. So this in that time, there were 10 times, 50 times more animators out there than when I left. Um, but that had had the process of like making a lot less money for mm -hmm. everybody. Like I was making a couple thousand more. Well, I was making I was making twenty five thousand more in base salary when when I came back ten years later. But that was as director of sixteen people, a big department. I was also like considered a. Uh, executive level person in this company with stock options and all this stuff. Mm. So it was, and it's like, that was fine. You know, in LA, that wasn't like great money, but I like, I could live fine. But uh, I was like, whoa, baby, that's, and it's kind of been the same ever since. Like there's mm. a lot of, it's, it, it's hard to make good money in animation. You know, mm -hmm. you can make okay money, but like it's, they really work to keep the, the wages down. Interesting, yeah, that's very interesting. I was gonna ask too, um, when you're talking about rigging, for the people who don't know what that is, could you explain what rigging is? Because I don't even know if I fully understand it. In the simplest term, and I think this really describes it, is if you think of if we had a little puppet here and you had um, like all the parts of like a little, uh, you know, Pinocchio style puppet, um, that would be the modeler. The modeler would be the guy carving those little pieces of wood in 3D and, and he finishes it and he basically is done. It, before it can be animated, you need sort of a framework. So think of the rigger as the guy that goes and threads the string in between the elbows and the hands and he decides, well, we're gonna make each finger articulate, but we're only gonna put one joint between the two, uh, between the knuckle and the finger and he's gonna thread that together. And he huh. kind of decides how far each of the joints rotate. And much of what makes contemporary animation look special and believable and have a real depth of performance is the sophistication of the rigging and also kind of like planning things out because deformation in the models are really distracting. And when you look at early CG animated movies, um, Toy Story, they were, the thing about Pixar was they were always really clever about this. So they had good artistic judgment to mask their shortcomings in being able to rig things or deal with deformation of surfaces. But if you look at some of the imitator ones, like the early DreamWorks pictures and, and I think the early Blue Sky stuff, you know, you see really kind of aesthetically really ugly mouths, really ugly deformations in the faces, mm -hmm. like uh, the Sony one, um, Haunted House, is that what it is? Oh, or Ghost yeah. House or whatever that one? Yeah, it was. Uh, that Rob Schwab film. They, um, there's some real like ugly judgments around that. And, oh. and that's where, Riggers are sort of not only figuring out, they're not only threading the puppet together, but they're figuring out, well, the arm should only move this far, and we have to make this shoulder move, mm. you know, in a particular way so that it doesn't look totally broken. Like, shoulders are a huge problem in a, in a humanoid type figure. So, the shoulder's like a super complicated structure on a human and the way it works. And if you get it wrong, any little movement you have, like all the, um, the, what are the films, the um, image movers, image makers? Uh, the Robert Zemeckis films like uh, The Christmas Carol oh, okay. and um, The Polar Express. Yes. You know, you can, you, they really feel like human skin sort of stretched over boxes and the, and the movements of the shoulders 
in particular are really awkward and, mm. and, and difficult to watch and it, that grabs the eye real quickly. That's true, yeah. I mean, I grew up watching Polar Express like numerous times. I still watch it every Christmas. Um, and yeah, I never really paid attention to that. Which is shoulder. great. Because I was so little and I think now I would probably judge it more <laughs> just looking at what's out there today. I mean, it's... Yeah, well, and, and the, that's the great thing about film or, I mean, video games in some ways are even a better example of this of like, well, if you're playing and having fun, if you're into the story and, you're, and, you're, and you, you step over that boundary of, of disbelief, then you're in it and it all is forgiven, right? And we've all got those movies where it's like, oh, that's not a big deal, who cares? We can see the strings on the bat behind Dracula. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's where's that level? And as viewers become more sophisticated with their viewing, I mean, I don't think you could release Polar Express now and people accept it aesthetically. Um, yeah. and, and that's just as the kind of collective eye gets trained, you know, and exposed to more and better stuff. But for us as artists, like that's what you're spending, you know, it's the last 10% of every animation that takes 80% of the time to do it. Like you can block things in and get things going. It's the last little bit that takes all your time. So it's like us fudging where that shoulder is to not show it in an awkward way is what kills us and we spend so much time on. Right, yeah. So actually going over to film now, I think um, you covered so much about video games. It, it's, you've enlightened me. <laughs> but uh, how does uh, animation in video games relate to animation in the world of cinema today? Like, yeah, especially when you consider uh, visual effects now, like I'm sure it's drastically different than even 10 years ago, like what you were just talking about with Wally. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? Well, um, you know, in some ways, I don't feel, I feel like by the time they got to Ratatouille Wally, -E, I feel like that's kind of a high water mark for Pixar, not because I had anything to do with them, because I didn't have anything to do with their films, but just, I, I felt like that was kind of a level that they achieved. Like there's things in Monsters, Inc. that are, they still kind of stand out to me in some of the earlier films, as much as I, I, I like those films. Um, whereas Ratatouille and Wally, I feel like really still hold up visually. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that they, they've gotten, they've refined things, but I don't know that the, the films now are aesthetically any better, mm. uh, except in subtle ways. Um, what they have done is, you know, back then it was, they were more reliant on the individual animators to get the performance and, and Pixar, they had a lot more kind of custom rigging for shots and, and now things are just a lot more standardized and codified and animators are much more, you can just plug them in. Um, but uh, as far as visual effects, where you know, a lot of the stuff is automation, like Houdini, these different uh, effects engines hmm. that make very, like, like in the Wally game, we brought in a Havoc element, the Havoc engine, we yeah. brought in that and plugged it into our engine to, to deal with some physics. And like that's just a whole another level of, of uh, you know game experience to have some kind of realistic physics that you're not having to animate but can just set loose in the world. And that's only gotten more and more sophisticated. Feature film like the special effects. Thank the Lord above, I never had to deal with that. And I tested <laughs> for Disney way back in the kind of Tarzan days, and they didn't have any any uh, for the features. They didn't have any feature jobs, but they said do you want to take a job in the effects department? And I was That's like, funny. no way. Um, <laughs> but 
I've had friends that do the special effects stuff and it's its own very technical thing where you're really relying on leveraging the technology to make that stuff work. Interesting. So why were you not interested in special effects versus animation? I mean, yes, you're interested in drawing and all that. That's, well, I think I that's a big part of it. I think, I think dealing with people slash characters, I feel, is my strong point. Mm. And I could do it, the effects, and maybe I couldn't, but like, I don't love the technical stuff. Like, okay. I'm very much like, as soon as anything goes wrong, Where's IT? Come and help me. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. Um, and and the rigors, like I'd lean on the rigors totally, you know. And I didn't want to dip into any of that stuff. Really, to my detriment, I should have been more aggressive in that stuff. But uh, but I like um, the performance and and that sort of thing. And I'll really sweat like getting a movement right. You mm -hmm. know, that's more how I would look at it. Okay. Yeah, and and also like there's a diva element of like, well, if I've done all this work to get good at drawing and doing the thing. Like, that's what I want to do. I don't, I don't want to do the, not to knock special effects people, I really feel like that's a different skill. And people I super respect do it, and it's a beautiful thing, and it really enriches a game or a movie. In some ways, that's where more, the more interesting stuff is kind of being done. A lot of it's kind of invisible to us, but, um, but yeah, that stuff just doesn't interest me as an animator. Okay, that's understandable. Good so, to know your limits. Yeah. And um, so, but with film and animation, like the relationship, they're closer than ever in many ways. Like, like it's unbelievable the level of rendering that you get in games. Mm. And at the same time, there's you know it used to be that like we as kind of animators or storytellers would get really jacked up about the story in the game or the cinematics that we put in the game. But we, but you know, the people playing the game were kind of like, okay, click through, click through, click. Like they don't, they didn't really care. But I think there's been a shift that that people over the years have become much more kind of emotionally enmeshed in the game worlds and the game characters. Mm -hmm. And there's like a real appetite for experiencing the cinematics, for producing nice cinematics, and also like just viewing the game as if not narrative as kind of a visual spectacle passively. Like you're talking about all these YouTube playthroughs of games. Like yeah. I just laugh. Like we're like, oh my God, who could sit through a video game watching somebody else play it? Like we had to do that, <laughs> you know, for work. But, but, uh, but it's a thing. And I think people are happier to live in that world now um, in a way that maybe there was more impatience about it when we were making the games originally. That makes perfect sense. I mean, I remember the uh, the moment when I played Uncharted for the first time on uh, the PlayStation 3. Uh, and that was when HD vi video gaming was new. Yeah. And um, to today's standards, it's a little bit primitive. Uh, you know, the shadows were not all there and it just looked kind of awkward, some of the, the animation in, the, in Nathan Drake's character. But, but now, like, looking back, I realize that, yeah, they had cinematics in those games because they're going towards realism. Yeah. And people wanted to watch it. That yeah. felt like they were more engrossed in the character. Um, whereas um, there's this sort of distance um, between, you know, a character on screen in video games and ourselves in reality. Because it's like completely like not looking like us, you know, like back in the day you said you were working the 90s in pixel art and the character is only like so many pixels yeah. high and wide and so that doesn't look like the human figure at all and yeah. now it's becoming more and more like the human figure so it makes sense 
Well, but that's the crazy thing. Like, like there's always this limit of, uh, I always remember this funny uh, kind of psychology anecdote about animal psychology, or I don't know exactly how they'd categorize it, but that they took a, a model of a female turkey and they would put a male turkey in the pen with it and they would judge how deconstructed they could get the female turkey to where the male turkey would not try and have sex with her. <laughs> and they could get it where they would just have part of the tail feather arrangement of the female and the male turkey would still try and go have sex with it. And you think like, that's ridiculous. Doesn't he know it's not phony? But there is this threshold that we are all subjected to of like identification and it can go really far into this abstracted look. Like I know people that get very emotional about certain 16-bit title events. You know what I mean? Like you can still, even in that 28 pixel tall character, find a way in, identify with it. And That's so, so interesting. And, it, and, it, and it's sort of, it's a really interesting question that sort of video games have almost like moved on beyond. Like now it's almost like they're too real to even entertain that anymore. And yet you're always getting to that little dice of like, it's different than a person clearly. And yet yeah. we identify, and yet why do we care? <laughs> I mean like Charlie right. Brown is such a simple, simple drawing. And yet, you know, we care about those characters, you know, yeah. deeply, profoundly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and every year people come back to it. It's still yeah. want to identify with it. So. Well, and video games are weird because of the whole first person thing. Like when you think oh. of cinema and the whole experiment of point of view, like first person, particularly first person shooters, but any sort of first person game is like the maximum point of view, which is always terrible in a movie when you see it done like to an extreme. But in a, in a video game, it's like such an intense way to experience it, right? Um, so yeah, it's that, that, that difference between, there's questions of cinema that video game have been able to explore in a real interesting way. Yeah. Absolutely. And so now moving on, I wanted to ask for people who are interested in animation, mm. who want to pursue a career in animation, mm. whether it's in video games or in film mm. today, how would you go about that? Well, it's funny. I was just talking, well, not just, but uh, uh, last year, last year I was on a panel at Comic-Con where we did animators that do caricature. and We did this big caricature jam and John Musker the director of uh, Little Mermaid among other things was was in Hercules um, was on there and then this really talented artist Callie Fontanecchio and I was talking to them about it and you know Musker came up you know way before me in a generation that specifically you went to CalArts specifically you got a job at Disney you know and there was just a few people every year doing that in the world and now it's blown apart so much and I was talking to him and Callie and Callie was like I'd say fuck school like you just need to work on your shit and get it out there like don't even worry about school and I I'd probably go somewhere in between hmm. um, I hated being at UCSD the first time through hmm. because I really wanted to learn specifically how to animate and they were not teaching me that and really at that point Almost nobody was doing that anywhere in the globe. And so I had to kind of figure some stuff out on my own. But coming back to school now, lo, these many years later, 
it's been interesting because I've done all the work to kind of learn the technical stuff in a way. Um, I mean, there's always the technical treadmill never ends. Right. So I wouldn't <laughs> present myself as like a technically cutting edge animator, but but uh, but the program here, and I think they're doing a better job of addressing the issues, is um, trying to teach you to be critical, to teach you to be a creator. Because so many of the students that I've dealt with in my teaching, because I've taught animation, um, are they, they fall in this gap of like, okay, great, you've learned this stuff, but what do you want to say? There is a big industry that's just looking for bodies to be put in seats at the right salary to get the, the workload done, mm -hmm. right? And they're not really interested in you telling your story. Whatever, whatever sweet talk they want to give you about your very special individuality, you know, like it's kind <laughs> of a machine, the animation industry. So especially when you're at the student phase, whether you, like me, drop out of school to teach yourself or whether you're in a program, that really is the time when you can kind of, like Professor Nicole Miller was saying to us, create your thesis statement. You know, what is it about life that you want to express? What is it about art that you want to express through animation? Why animation? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's really useful and it's allowed me to not, you know, I've, I've kind of had a at a distance relation with the industry because I've always kind of had my own thing going on with art and um, I remember when my first game came out Ren and Stimpy came out and they were running a lot of commercials on TV for the game. And like it was like my animation on screen of somebody else's characters. And like we went to the store and there were, you know, a display in the games and the And it was kind of like, huh, that's cool. And then I remember having to screen my unfinished animated film here at UCSD. And I've never felt the level of stress before screening that film here. And I've never felt the sense of elation after having completed it. Not because the oh. screening was a success, but because it was like, I conceived this thing, I came up with it, I did it, and I did it. Like, it came off. Yeah. And, and always, it's, it's amazing how big a difference there is, I think. And I notice with a lot of people that put too much stock into, like, this thing I've done for this company, like there's a hollowness to a lot of that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That you shouldn't get fooled about that hollowness. And school's a great place for you to figure out for yourself, like, you know, there needs to be some meaning for you, yeah. not just beyond feeding the meat machine, you know? Right. And, and I think school's a great way in that way. I mean, I think you've gotta be, you've gotta make work and you've gotta be serious about the art form that doesn't mean you have to be like everybody else. The industry is really tough also in the way that because of the explosion of technology and jobs, there's also been this hyper-specialization. Like, it's crazy how mm. specific some of the job descriptions are now. And like, they only want to see a portfolio for, you know... That specific uh, specialization. Yeah, like, like prop turnaround artist or, wow. you know, uh, level design mapping or something like those are <laughs> bad examples. I forget the real specifics, but there's um, super specialization in things and that can get really daunting to break into the industry. The other advantage of school, I will say, is that you are put in touch with a cohort and whether you go to school or whether you're on DeviantArt or whether it's through Instagram, finding some peers that you will then go through this artistic journey together with 
is super important. Like mm. the games that I've done, yeah, whatever. You know, the money they pay you, it gets spent. You live. You know, hopefully you're able to do okay and set a little by. But the people you've worked with, that is totally what it's all about and what stays with you. And that that uh, you know, doing a good job, having the respect of your peers, that is the super valuable thing. Like the fact that people will still mention me like. Ooh, yeah, he could really draw, or he was a great animator, even if it's false. But the <laughs> fact that they would still think that, that's really the gold. And, and I think people can get very caught up in the short-termism. As big as the industry is, it's also a small industry. Mm -hmm. And like people remember, if you're a jerk, they're not going to want to work with you again. You know? yeah. and, and having that peer group, establishing yourself and establishing connections, like people can be very mercenary about it and like mm, it's better if you can think of it as a chance to really share an enthusiasm about something and and you know be generous about things the other thing yeah. i'll say too is really be generous it's very hard in the arts to not feel like everything's a zero sum if zach gets the job i don't <laughs> if i get the job zach doesn't that it's like that's it right instead i was taught a long time ago and it really made a difference for me you know, think of, of success as like lifting all boats kind of thing. Always be encouraged by another artist's success because that means there's somebody out there willing to pay a dollar for art. And you really like sharing credit. It, it, my brief time as a manager of a team, I've had multiple members of that team come back and say like, you were the best manager I had. And I'm like, okay, well why? Like, okay, I'm, I'm relatively likable, but why? They said, you know, you gave credit mm -hmm. to people and you really wanted to help people get the job done and not just like bah, 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 tell them what to do or make them an example. Um, and I think thinking about that kind of generosity, whatever level you're at, you know, is, is, a, is a good thing to do as an artist. That's great advice, yeah, and a positive encouragement for everyone. That's let, really awesome. Let me ask you something here. Now, I'm yeah. kind of a little bit, like I'm doing the classes, finishing the degree after, after so many years, uh, but for you as a student in here, do you feel like there's a real collegial feeling, or do you feel, because I've had students come up and, and say they think it's very competitive here and that people aren't likely to help each other. Mm. What's your experience been? Wow, that's that's a great question. That's something that I look at all the time, and I, I kind of I see my peers, and they have their little groups of friends that you know they they work together all the time, and I'm somewhat struggling right now to mm. still find crew for mm. my films because either like people have gotten so close to each other, or they're like you know I don't even know how they you know they. Uh, get so tight together and I try to be tight with people of course but like there still is that competitive nature I felt um, even inside these uh, seemingly collaborative groups like Triton Television is one on campus oh, uh -huh. uh, that is specifically for uh, filmmakers who, who want to you know make their own films uh, and that has been pretty collaborative but um, you almost have to like join that space. Once you step outside of it, like I have, I went in, did a program with Triton TV, but then I stepped out. Uh, I felt like it wasn't the most beneficial, but then there was this network 
that came exclusively from them. Mm. And once I stepped away from that, I felt like I distanced myself from friends that I had. Yeah. And so therefore, I no longer have a crew <laughs> that I can call upon, you know? And yeah. that's a problem, um, even with like being in class with people like you and I. Um, I feel like it's sometimes hard to get uh, each other to be, you know, collaborative on each other's projects. Yeah. Because, um, you know, people either have a busy life or like they want to get to their next class or whatever, and they, you know, they, you know, have trouble trying to talk to other people. Yeah. They, uh, either they're sitting across the room on the other complete side and that's their excuse or, you know, it's just uh, they feel like they may not have the right person um, to help out. They may not know like what skill sets they have. So there's this sort of like fear, I think, of like not making it, not finding the right people, which inherently like makes it hard on themselves like me too. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's, it just comes down to, I guess, going out and just talking to people. There's I, that, but it's interesting that they, they leave it, there is a real kind of Darwinian level of just sort of like, which I think I kind of fault the school for because like it'd be different if we go into a class and like the projects are kind of laid out and we're all expected to fulfill like one of three roles on each other's mm -hmm. one of the projects, right? Like somebody's going to work the camera, somebody's going to work sound and somebody's going to direct. Yeah. And, and we're each kind of, and we know like, okay, I'll be camera on Zach and I'll be sound on, yeah on errands or whatever, you know, and it, but like, because it's kind of left open, it ends up being the same thing where people kind of coagulate with the people they feel more, all the foreign students kind of do their things together and all the other right, students. Right, right, exactly. Kinda, and it's like, that's fine up to a degree, but I wish there were some, it doesn't have to be every class, doesn't, it definitely doesn't have to be every project, because I think group projects are inherently problematic too, but film's a collaborative medium, and it would be nice if there was a little more of a sense of like, um, kind of, you know, kind of prescribed a prescription for everybody yeah. that, would, that would help break those barriers down. Because I think it's tough to be like a teenager and going into your 20s just all on its own, let alone in this crazy hyper accelerated program mm -hmm. and, and just sort of like, well, you guys figured out, like they're pretty disconnected from shepherding us through any of the projects, you know? Yeah. And that's got its pros and cons, but I feel like it really advantages the people that are sort of like plugged into a social group already. Exactly, you know? yeah. And actually, the, here's one thing that I think could change with the curriculum here, um, is that while I think it's a good thing that they start us off in groups, uh, they have us do group projects for like the first half of the quarter, and then mm. the second half is dedicated towards our personal final project. Mm -hmm. That's perfect, but then um, because the group projects allow us to connect with people um, and form a potential group for our, our crew. But then the problem is that they don't randomize, you know, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, the groups. You know, exactly. they just say, just form a group with whoever you want in the room. And that is a problem, in my opinion, because yes. yeah, that does form the cliques yeah. and the, the friends that, you know, they already have. And that doesn't really force people to go out and make new friends. And yeah, it's is, surprisingly yeah. siloed, right? Mm -hmm. Like like it would be a very different experience for everybody when you're forced to be. Yeah. And I did like that about in Babette's 16 millimeter class, yes. you know, we just got lumped into groups on one project at least, or two projects I think. Yeah, she just kind of divided us up, right? Because yep. we didn't choose those groups, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think, I think that was random. 
Yeah. It was more random, mm -hmm. right? Because Anagen and Michael and I, we were just sort of, she just kind of threw it together. I mean, I think some people shouted out like, oh, could I be? But it was um, she numbered us it off. Was I think yeah. It was a very different experience. Yep. You know, it was a very and I'm conscious of that too. Like when I'm in class, and it's like, oh, I'm naturally talking to Aaron. You know, uh, Aaron's a few years older than some of the other people in here, and I also feel like you know I'm more of an outsider. Like I don't want to impinge on the young people's experience of college. This is great for them. They don't need my nonsense. But um, you know, you try and just kind of find your way. But I definitely noticed like. You know, we all have kind of our little little comfort bubbles, right. even more than a click, and that's totally understandable. But I, one of the great things about college is getting to, you know, ideally be exposed to people that are real different. Exactly. Yeah. And so I guess uh, coming to my last couple of questions for you is that you kind of touched on this already, but like, why did you decide to come back to UCSD? What, what, uh, what value did well, you find I'd in begin, it? Well, I got asked to teach up at Cal State Fullerton uh, animal anatomy and drawing class um, for their animation department, and it was just kind of a blast. But I had seven days before the class started, and long, long ago I taught an animal drawing class down at the San Diego Zoo here, and so a friend suggested me for that as this last-minute fill-in. And that went really well. And so they, I started teaching full-time for them for the last four years. And um, they were like, well, we really like you. We'd like to hire you full-time as a professor, but you don't even have a four-year degree. Mm. And so the thought was, well, I'll get the four-year degree so I can get hired somewhere. Um, I don't know whether that'll be at Cal State Fullerton. Um, ideally, I'd like to be down here in San Diego. Mm -hmm. uh, it might wind up really that I have to get an MFA. Um, so I probably am looking at grad school, although I'm also looking at just going back in the industry and doing animation. In the meantime, I kind of went from video game animation to doing storyboards to doing um, magazine illustration and magazine articles. And uh, so I've got that aspect going too. So okay. you know, animation's hard work. Yeah. Certain types of animation are a lot of fun. Making my own film animation, is really fun. Doing it on a deadline for a video game, it's sort of like, I've done that. I'm happy to pass that on. <laughs> Although the industry is much more respectful in general of people's time than it used to be, we were just worked like crazy. And now, like my buddies at Blizzard, you know, they're really like, it's a five day work week and they mm. go home at 6.30 or whatever. Okay. Like, it's a, like it's not like we were like, it was crazy before. Interesting. It was yeah. like you heard where it was seven days a week, which is crazy. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's insane. I can't believe they even did that. But well, animation is one of those things. Like you've got to go deep. So partly, like you would just be working on something. Like y you could work twelve hours straight, like not getting up from the seat, just because of the nature of the task, uh -huh. right? Like you're just zeroed in on this task, and so yeah, that's a tough thing about it. Programming's like that too. Yeah, yeah. And so, last question. I ask this to every guest, uh, and it is that what final advice do you have for incoming students to film school who might be interested in animation in this case, or just making their own films in general? And mm. uh, advice for people who are already in film school, what would you tell them? Well, let me answer in two parts because. If you're interested in animation, there's an ecology of instruction out there that you could do independent of a school, right? Like you could look at YouTube videos, you can make stuff, you can find an online community to have that critiqued. 
And you can, you can get pretty far technically. You could probably do fantastic stuff technically. So there's an aspect of that that you could deal with even outside of school. But looking at the school experience, I mean, and a lot of people have been repeating this advice lately. I've been seeing this kind of floating around on Twitter, like best college advice you can give. Everybody's been saying like, attend the classes, right? Mm -hmm. Like don't miss class. And it seems like that's pretty de rigueur in our little program here. But I would say the point of that is listen to what they're saying because I still think about things that I learned that first go around. Like I was a terrible student in many ways at UCSD and was basically flunking out when I dropped out. <laughs> but I really took the material seriously and I really learned so much about cinema and the grounding of many aspects of filmmaking that helped me so much in video game and I got so many promotions because of feeling more comfortable expanding away from just my little niche of, of animation. For instance, co-writing the video game script for Wally with Jim Reardon, the writer of the Wally screenplay. Wow. You know, like getting to go up to Pixar and sit down with him and, and show him my storyboards and go over the script with him, make corrections like that's a really special experience. And a lot of that was because of what I did, honestly, way back here at UCSD, which didn't really have anything to do with animation per se, but the film school itself. Like, if you're gonna go to a school, embrace the fact that you're in a school and that like, they actually know stuff as disengaged sometimes as the professors may seem, although I, I do have to say they seem much better this second go around. You know, um, Take the material seriously and challenge yourself to learn as much as you can. Even the theoretical stuff may seem like bullshit, but there's, there's an aspect of that that can really enrich your dialogue. Because the one constant in your career is, is adaptability. The, the changes in technology and media since I left school to now is like unbelievable, and it's gonna be even more for you guys. So the adaptability is much bigger than just learning like Premiere, you know? Yeah. Um, the other piece of advice would be this is your cohort. So like we're talking about, it's difficult to necessarily make friends or form these alliances, but that that can, and it can only be like one or two people maybe, but if you have creative partners, it is so helpful in your journey um, to whatever you're gonna do in the industry, right? Crewing, you know, that generosity of spirit, supporting other people's creativity as well as inviting people in to help with your own creativity, it's, it's a great thing and, and it's a great practice to get into while you're in school as opposed to having to learn on the job. I spoke about that first time I had a subordinate in quotes, you know, an assistant animator and I really didn't handle it well because I hadn't done well in school with that sort of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. So look at school as a great place to practice being a professional. Like it's a great place to practice failure and it's a great place to practice professionalism, mm -hmm. you know? I would definitely say that makes it worthwhile. Like really fleshing out your character. It's one thing if you get to animate, okay, great. Well now, like for instance, a really good friend of mine is a story artist. Um, he was a story artist for a long time at Disney. He was head of story for Surf's Up. He was at Sony, now he's at Netflix. But like Disney at one point they said, well, we want to make a film. We don't know what the subject's going to be, but we think South America. We want a setting in South America. So they sent him, a writer and a director, maybe, maybe a character designer, down to South America for like three weeks. 
Just go and fill up a sketchbook and come up with ideas. Now, it's cool if you're good at just like plugged in and animating, but you go down there, how well-rounded are you as a person? Mm. How much thought about life? When it actually comes to the sharp end of like creating stories, creating a vision, like school is a great place to enrich yourself and expand your horizon and bring in that richness. And when I've had to deal with filmmaking people or, or other people that have a more sophisticated understanding of, of media and media history, and you can bring up film history points or call out movies or understands the different film movements, uh, you know, it gives you a credibility that's like, it, it's priceless because they're like, oh, okay, we can trust this guy. He knows what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. There's no way they should have hired me to be the director of that Pixar uh, video game, the doing the Pixar games over at THQ. But when I came in, I'd been out of the industry for 10 years, but I could talk the talk. I understood the stuff. I had a deeper understanding than just like, well, I'm used to animating and alias. I haven't used Maya, you know? So yeah. always push yourself to the next level and, and college is definitely the place to give you that platform. That's awesome advice. Yeah. Thanks, Marty. You have so much experience. I could talk to you for hours. You're amazing. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your experience and joining in on the Film Frat House. Where can people find you and your work? I do intermittently post things to Instagram on uh, Marty Davis Art. Okay. Um, with underscores between it, I think is how I did it. And, and Ranjo was like, you idiot, you should have just made it your name. <laughs> but um, but uh, that's on Instagram. And then I've got a website, uh, comicsbymartydavis.com, which shows a lot of the illustration work now, um, magazine stuff. So yeah, thank you, Zach. That was really fun. I of hope course. I hope that was enjoyable. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right. I hope you enjoyed that special conversation with Marty Davis, one of my dear friends, and a man who has his sheer talent, has utter talent, and I just can't believe that I have known him through class. We actually met during 16 millimeter in spring. And uh, you may have heard that in the conversation, but now we are in another class together, uh, which is called Fiction and Allegory. It's a pretty broad class, but it is a filmmaking class. And he is obviously doing animation as we speak. He is still kicking. He's got a lot left, and it's I just see success in his future even further past the success that he has he has received during his time with Blue Sky and Heavy Iron, because that, that to me, is like making it, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not the end of the road either. Once you, you become a lead animator, you know, you, you keep going, and you can still work your way up, and you can still, as a student, break in to the industry. You don't have to get your degree first, apparently, as, uh, as Marty's case happened to be but uh it was just a really inspiring conversation i hope it was for you too and until next time um you can also listen to the other episodes of the film prep podcast they are up on spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts uh episode 10 which is the previous one before this was with jordan jacobo i really recommend that one that was just as good uh and that was a really great conversation about community and building up your channel and a brand that is specific uh, and unique to you and that will garner an audience. 
And I just think that you can get a lot out of these episodes. I'm trying to bring on guests that have value to bring to the table, especially for student filmmakers. And you can also check out the Film Frat website where I have a free guide for students called the Big Frat Camera Guide for Students 2019. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. There's another one next week. And meanwhile, remember that you are gifted, you are creative, and you are able. Talk to you later. That's all from this episode of the Film Fraternity Podcast. For more filmmaking tips and tricks you can use on your next project, visit www.filmfrat.com. That's F-I-L-M-F-R-A-T dot com.